Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here in San Francisco, and I am with Matt Adareth, who is a managing director at Two Sigma Investments, and Scott Clark. Scott is the founder and CEO at SigOpt and has been on this show previously. Matt and Scott, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Awesome. So uh, I'm really excited about diving into this conversation. We'll be talking about uh, Two Sigma's journey with regard to uh, building out its modeling and machine learning platform. Uh, Matt, you've not been on the show before. Would love to hear a little bit about your background, how you got started working in machine learning and at this intersection of engineering and modeling. Yeah, uh, it's always been uh, an area that I've been interested in, the the intersection of computer science and math. Uh, that's what I studied at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and I always wanted to find some place where I could apply both of those uh, disciplines and learn and grow in those. So uh, after school, I went to Microsoft where I was there for about four years working on Office, which there, there wasn't so much math there, unfortunately, but it was very interesting. And then I, I left Microsoft to join a startup that was spun out of Microsoft Research, uh, where I was doing a lot of analytics on social networks. Um, and I, I realized that I wanted to be at a place where I'd be able to do and the math that I had learned and loved. And um, the thing that occurred to me was that finance would be a great place to do that because they exist at that intersection of math and computer science. And then the the, the whole world of finance was also uh, very interesting to me. So uh, about 12 years ago, I joined Two Sigma. Um, it was much smaller than but I uh, started working on tools and infrastructure there for analyzing data and have really helped build out the platform that we have today. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely be coming back to that. Uh, but before we do, Scott, give us a refresher about your background and uh, what SigOpt is up to. Yeah, definitely. So SigOpt provides uh, an experimentation and optimization platform that can bolt on top of platforms like we're talking about today. Um, and really help uh, amplify and accelerate the way that you get to impact from these modelers. Uh, I came to this via grad school where basically when I was doing my PhD at Cornell, I saw that experimentation and optimization was a core part of every project anyone in my department was doing. Um, that was reinforced when I went to Yelp and worked on the advertising system. And so decided to build SigOp to help solve this problem in an enterprise way for universities, government agencies, and firms like Two Sigma around the world today. So, Matt, you started at Two Sigma 12 years ago, you said. Yes. Um, where was Two Sigma kind of in, in the journey of a, a platform? You, you, you started there working on tools and infrastructure as opposed to coming over from, from data science. Uh, were you, uh, you know, one of the first people working on tools and infra, or was there already an established group uh, focused on that? So there were teams working on it, um, but it was really more uh, spread across the the teams like our data engine. We had a data engineering team um, and there was a, a modeling engineering team, um, but they would each build out their, their own infrastructure um, of varying qualities. And it was a little later that we started really trying to find the solution that would work for, for everyone. Um, but 
since the beginning, uh, the company was founded in 2001, and it was started as a quantitative investment manager with a focus on building out platforms for the things that we were trying to do with the knowledge that uh, we would try to expand into different businesses and then we'd want to be able to leverage the solutions that we had already built. So it was already in, in play when I when I got there 12 years ago um, and it was more just like picking up the torch on, on certain uh, areas that needed more focus. Okay. Okay. Uh, and so maybe – Talk a little bit about the uh, the various uh, constituents you serve. Are you do you have a, a single type of data scientist or a single type of skill set uh, there? Do you have engineers as well as data scientists as well as other types of quantitative folks that are using the tools that you're building? Yeah, so it really is a wide variety of skill sets that we're trying to serve. Um, even within our, our modeling discipline, there are some folks who are much more technical and are looking at things from a uh, like a technique perspective. Um, and then there are other folks who are much more focused on understanding their data sets and trying to uh, figure out what the predictive value is based off of uh, a deep understanding of where the data comes from and what it means. Uh, and roughly how many users does your group support? Uh, so the company is roughly a third modeling. So um, talking around 500. Wow. Okay. And so I guess what I'm curious most about is how the thinking about building out tools and platforms to support modeling has evolved over the time that you've been there. So one of the things that, that we, we try to do is not be prescriptive about the tools that our modelers use. We we want to hire the best and we want them to uh, be able to apply the tools and techniques that they are familiar with and that they are able to to leverage the most. Um, so that's a challenge when we're trying to build up platforms because if we're not being prescriptive, we, we can't really limit them. But what we try to do is uh, identify the common threads that will benefit the most number of people. We also try to identify what we think are going to be the winners in terms of technologies, um, where we can give them a little bit more of a push or support them a little bit more uh, to make those extra easy uh, to drive people to them without being prescriptive. How did SIGOP come into play? How did you find one another? You know, was there a search around Sigmas and <laughs> what companies can we find? Uh... Well, we definitely ran into each other at a lot of the similar academic conferences that we go to and publish, whether it's ICML, NeurIPS, that kind of thing. But I think a lot of it, after seeing each other, what drove us together was this shared desire to be very modeling-driven and really help augment and amplify these experts. So it's not about, again, being prescriptive, like Matt said. It's more about giving them the tools to run as fast as they can once they've picked a direction. And so you want to be able to uh, unify and standardize on things that make sense to standardize on, but then don't do it in a constraining way. So you want to provide optionality so that they can use their expertise, that context awareness, that domain expertise, um, but at the end of the day, really run as fast as possible. And I think modeling platforms help with that, and agnostic optimization helps with that, and uh, good infrastructure helps with that, but it's really about really empowering these people, which is that shared vision I think we both have. Matt, when you think about the kind of end-to-end -end, uh, modeling platform that your team is offering, how do you articulate the various components of that? You know, when I think about these kinds of platforms, I tend to think of them in terms of you know, data management and, and 
transformation in those kinds of things, experiment management and production or model deployment. Do you have a similar uh, view of the landscape or do you organize things uh, differently? At a high level, that's how we look at things. Um, I would break it down a little bit more. Even at the data management um, stage, we break, we have uh a finer breakdown where there are things around like data ingestion um, is is a big thing for us because we have so many data sets that we take in that that's what what we do is we try to bring in as many data sets as possible uh, and find the value in all of them. Um, so bring ingesting at scale is, is a challenge, cleaning at scale um, and making sure that that data is not just available for doing data science, but making sure that it's available for our real-time trading systems, which is a uh, an additional challenge because there is this timeliness aspect to how, how soon we process the data. Um, then on the research side, there are we break things down even further um, around not just accessing uh, the data, but transforming it, sharing transformations is, is a big concern for us, um, and then modeling. Okay. And so then on the modeling side, do you have further distinctions within that set of capabilities? Yeah. So the first part uh, of the modeling capabilities is, is just doing the preliminary analysis of the data, like exp- just exploratory data analysis that everybody does. Um, uh, we have a lot of focus on the time seriousness of everything. We treat everything as a time series. We kind of have this belief that everything is a time series. And if you have something that you think isn't a time series, uh, you're probably wrong. And you're going to regret not treating it as a time series because um, it changes and we need to be able to do point in time simulations and backtesting for everything. Um, so there's this whole phase of analysis and modeling and then um, – once you have something that you think has predictive value, there's this second stage of seeing how it trades. And um, that is really a, a different um, a different style of analysis than typical data science uh, outside of finance. You mentioned previously that um, some of the things that you're doing are particularly challenge- challenging at the scale that you're doing it. Can you give us a sense for the scale? So I, I mentioned that we have hundreds of researchers. Um, and they're each doing lots of different kinds of analysis at scale, whether they're doing the exploratory data analysis on large data sets or they're testing out their models and seeing how different parameters perform. Um, in some of those cases, they may be running thousands or tens of thousands of very expensive simulations. Um, so we have a huge uh, huge demand for compute and uh, a lot of challenges around scaling um scaling up to those, managing that that amount of compute. Scott, when you think about the, the challenges that Matt's talked about uh, from a modeling perspective, I'm curious, from your perspective, having seen this play out at a number of uh, customers, um, what of, of what he described would you say is unique to, to Sigma and what do you see broadly uh, in the industry? Yeah, great question. So I think broadly, we definitely see um, people doing unique modeling. They're doing differentiated modeling. There's something special about what they bring to the table, whether it's on the data side or whether it's the end application. And that's really, again, where domain expertise and contextual awareness plays a huge role. 
And whether that's in the asset management space or whether it's the work that we're doing with tech companies or the U.S. intelligence community, everybody has something different they're trying to solve. And what we've found is more and more companies are starting to invest in platforms, as, of course, you've seen with the series that you're, you've running and are continuing to run. Um, and a lot of that comes down to people were doing this already. They just might not have been doing it the right way, or they might not have been doing it in a way that could amplify the across the entire organization. And we see the same thing with experimentation. So there's a lot of parallels in terms of just the core concept of we have data, we're trying to solve a problem. It might be making trades uh, in a market. It might be trying to make a recommendation uh, for a streaming service. But at the end of the day, it's somebody trying to solve this very specific problem. And then teams like Matt's and teams like SIGOPT are trying to really just give them the tools to do those jobs better um, without forcing them into a sandbox or without trying to give them a one-size-fits-all solution. When I talk to folks that are trying to provide these types of tools, the you know the goals that they have are all over the map, right? Some folks have these broad... Um, yeah, I kind of asked about the different types of users that you're trying to support. Some folks, their primary goal is to make machine learning more accessible so that um, more teams can make models, can build models, that kind of thing. Other folks are driving towards, you know, the, their whole existence is around achieving some level of scale or uh, kind of compressing the, the innovation cycle, things like that. How do you think about, you know, your prime directives, if you will? What What is really driving uh, Two Sigma to, to continue to invest in this? If you had to like stack rank them. Yeah. So the two things are we want to get better answers and we want to get them faster. Uh, we have lots of modelers, like I mentioned before. So any multiplier on, on, on their speed really adds up, not just because there's so many of them, but because of what each of them is doing is so high value. So the, the two things that we're looking at are getting better, getting better answers and getting them faster. So the better answers can come from uh, applying better techniques that may discover things that couldn't be discovered otherwise. Um, and the speed comes not just from the speed of the algorithms that are, that are maybe doing these optimizations, but also the usability of the tool uh, is really critical for us. It, it's very easy to lose a day to trying to figuring out some error message or some weird API that wasn't well designed. So that's something that we're also really focused on. A big part of that is around, um, you know, these kind of different uh, elements of the the platform that we've talked about, making sure the data is available to folks, making sure they can iterate on uh, experiments very quickly. Do you have challenges on the productionalizing side as well, or, or are your users mostly focused on kind of analytical results and inquiry and not so much deploying models out? They do deploy models. We do have our modelers own their models end to end. That's something that we think there's a lot of value in doing. Um, and there are challenges in writing a production model versus doing something in research. That is another focus for my team, making sure that that transition is as seamless as possible. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the uh, benefits that you described in terms of increasing the pace of in innovation and kind of getting better results is focused on those researchers and their ability to churn through the possible solution space, if you will, for these problems that they're trying to solve. Is yes. that right? Yeah. Uh, and so you know, when you kind of think about the things that you've done to address or attack the experimentation challenge, what are can you kind of give us a spectrum of the um, types of things you've 
done from a platforming perspective to to narrow in on those goals? Sure. Um, so I can give a couple examples. Um, one is we focus a lot on the languages that people use, making sure that we have uh, domain-specific languages that allow them allow our modelers to express their problems really naturally um, and w while still having the flexibility to, to cover all of the possible ideas that they might have. And, um, and are they – what's the, the native modeling environment for your folks? Is it primarily notebooks or something else? Uh, we've Over the last few years, there's been a big push towards notebooks. Okay. Um, we've open sourced some of the stuff that we've built. Uh, Beaker X is one – uh, plugin that we have that runs on top of Jupyter that allows people to work in a, in a really seamless polyglot uh, environment and has some internal things that are uh, bespoke to our environment that make it just really easy for people to do the things that they need to do. Another example of the kinds of things that we focus on to make it easy for them um, is around running lots and lots of jobs, um, specifically Backtest simulations is, is a big focus for us. That's where a significant chunk of our compute is dedicated. Um, so making that easy for modelers to interact with, to, to launch things at scale, um, to monitor and manage those things, uh, when you, and to um, easily deploy to different uh, cloud providers or using our, our in-house um data centers, we just want to make that all as easy as possible so that they can get their jobs done quickly. And what's the interface between the researchers and the SIGOPT uh, product and uh, its capability? That, that's a great question. Um, we have a few different solutions. So there are many folks who use the SIGOPT API directly. Uh, it's it, it solves a problem that lots of people have and, and where they know that they have this problem. I have parameters. I want to tune them. Um, we also have a number of tools that are for solving specific problems that modelers have that use SIGOPT under the hood. So uh, we really like that it works well as just a component in, in other uh, tools where the modeler may not even know that they're using SIGOPT. Scott, is that a pretty common experience among uh, the folks that use SIGOPT? Yeah, I would say um, there's different tools for different jobs, and it's about yeah. Sometimes it's a end-to-end -end platform um, that allows some flexibility for the modeler, and sometimes it's something where it's a very point solution for for a very specific problem. Um, I guess I have one quick question, if that's okay for yeah, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as you start to build up these platforms, obviously you've been there for 12 years. Um, you've seen a lot of different iterations of this uh, over time. Um, how do you like measure the efficacy of some of your efforts? Like you guys have been on the bleeding edge for a long time, but I imagine there's been several iterations of infrastructure, of experimentation. Like how do you make sure you're making progress or um, how do you kind of make decisions of what's worth continuing to invest in, what's worth building versus buying? Well, we do have a lot of modelers. We do. It, it is also few enough that we're able to talk to them and um, understand have conversations about what they find useful. So that's something that we're always doing is um, just in, interfacing directly with our users and understanding uh, what they like and what they don't like. We do have tons of metrics. I mean, we're a quantitative investment manager, so we like to look at the numbers. We always are looking at things like usage, um, seeing how that's tracking uh, to help identify where we should focus. And in some cases, it's um, it's not driven by numbers. It's it's driven by just 
keeping an eye out on what's going on in the industry, in the broader ecosystem of data science and seeing what's applicable to us. Um, and then we evaluate those things through experiments. So like when we were looking at SIGOPT, we compared it to uh, not just the in-house solutions that we were already using, um, but also some other like open source things. Like we looked he heavily at GPIOPT as uh, one of the big alternatives um, and saw how it worked on a variety of optimization problems that, that we had identified. And when you were looking at it relative to those other things, just curious, was there any particular, was it a performance? Uh, you know, was it a, a performance motivation that led you towards SIGOPT or was it more of a user experience thing? And how do you, how do you weight those things? Yeah, so it, it's performance, both the quality of the solutions that it finds and how quickly it finds it, um, but also the amount, uh, the the usability and not just like is the API sane, but things like how much how much tuning do you need to do of your hyperparameter tuning? Uh, we found that for a lot of other solutions, GPIOPT in particular, um, it was very sensitive to its parameters that you would set it with. So, um, the fact that it wasn't something that we could just run and reliably get answers and that it was something that you had to fuss with a lot was another uh, qualitative measure that kind of turned us off from uh, pursuing those and made us go with SIGOPT. You need a hyperparameter optimizer for your hyperparameter optimizer? Yes. <laughs> was Sounds like a lot of turtles. <laughs> yeah, the number one piece of feedback we got after I open sourced Mo at Yelp was, this is great, but you've taken my optimization problem and turned it into another optimization problem. <laughs> But I guess, I mean, so you have 500 incredibly intelligent modelers, um, some of which have very deep expertise in mathematics. How do you decide for something like this? Obviously, you tried a bunch of in-house solutions. You looked at a bunch of different things. Like, how do you make that trade-off of this is worth us spending, spending up a team of 12 people and attacking it for years versus taking kind of a best-in-class solution? Like, how do you make that trade-off internally of, this is worth uh, us solving internally versus this is worth us partnering. Yeah, well, yep, we looked at the opportunity cost. Um, we have these folks who we've hired who are very talented, but um, we want them to be working on specific problems um, with the best tools that are available. So if there's something that already exists and it's a lot cheaper than us paying 12 folks to a year to build out, um, of course we're going to go with it. I'm curious about, you know, certainly on the modeling side, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, part and parcel to experimentation is, uh, you know, failure. You go down a path, it doesn't work out. You go down another path. Um, and that's kind of inherent to the modeling process. Uh, I'm curious if there are any things that you can share from a, a platform perspective, things that, you know, you tried, you were very excited about, they didn't really work out. They didn't give you the kind of performance or the, um, the acceleration that you were looking for. One thing that I can cite that's relevant to this is we, we've been looking at black box optimization for a very long time. Um, it's always been an interest of mine. I knew that it would be applicable to us. Um, so it was about seven years ago, um, I started a, a, an initiative to m make some more black box optimization algorithms uh, broadly available at the company that in ways that leveraged the rest of our platform and were just as easy as possible. And 
one of the issues that we ran into very quickly was when we, we started running things at a totally new scale that was required for doing these black box searches, um, a lot of the small pain points um, around having like long run running simulations fail, all, all sorts of things that just go wrong when you have distributed systems, uh, a lot of those things just broke the user experience completely. And we had to like table a lot of those initiatives around doing black, black box optimization to revisit our core platform uh, for how we run all of these jobs um, and what the interface was, how we deal with things like failures and just how do we make it work at scale. So um, it was kind of a, a pivot. We, we took this thing that we knew was a good idea, but really kind of failed because the environment wasn't right and then focused on the environment instead um, mm -hmm. and then kind of tabled the the black box optimization as a service um, because it was such a hard problem to to figure out the platform, which which took us years to build out and get right. Um, so I I kind of view that as something that didn't didn't work out. It had these additional benefits, but it also set us up uh, for success later on when something like Sigopt comes along um, that w we couldn't have leveraged if we didn't have already experienced our own failures uh, trying to solve the same problem. Okay. And, and at the infrastructure level, are you now having gone through that process? Um, are you using something like a Kubernetes or some other open source or is it some, a proprietary uh, distributed computing solution? Yeah. So when we started this, uh, it was before Kubernetes was really even a thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> for a lot of the things that we're talking about, we were doing it before it really was a thing. Even Even the term data science wasn't really happening 12 years ago when I when I started yeah. um, and big data wasn't a, a, a hot phrase that everybody knew. Um, so uh, our solution was built on top of uh, Apache Mesos, um, which uh, we built a framework on top of, of it. It has this nice pluggable inter, uh, like framework interface. So we were able to build something that handled our bespoke scheduling needs. Um, we open sourced it. Uh, our scheduler that we use because uh, we, we do know that there are other folks who have kind of similar problems and there are benefits to us to open sourcing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you you started before something like Kubernetes. You were using Mesos. Um, you know, in that kind of 12 years ago time frame, Mesos was the Kubernetes of distributed compute in the sense that it was very popular for these kinds of applications. Um and but, we are investing heavily in Kubernetes now over the last few years. Okay. So, yeah, we're keeping up. Okay. Um, interesting. And so you went down this path to build out um, some distributed optimization stuff. You you ran into limitations of the infrastructure. Uh, and it sounds like you spent a few years building out the infrastructure to support uh, kind of where you wanted the platform to go or the kinds of things that you knew you needed to to be able to do. Can you characterize how much of your efforts are spent kind of at the low level infrastructure versus uh, the the higher level tools and tools and services that are more researcher facing? Yeah, so we do have our en engineering org is also roughly about a third of the company and it's broken up into several teams. Um, there, I, I work on modeling engineering uh, where we focus on building out the tools and infrastructure that are targeting our modelers. There is a, a separate team called platform engineering, which is providing the, the platforms for 
all engineering and all of the company. So they're about the same size. Um, I think modeling engineering might be a little larger. So um, what we find is that sometimes we will build out platform solutions to solve a specific modeling problem and then realize, oh, actually, this is, this is more broadly applicable and do a, a handoff to another team, uh, to the platform engineering folks, um, which has happened with a lot of our compute uh, specifically. Mm -hmm. Did your team kind of identify uh, this problem or Kubernetes in particular and kind of stand that up and then hand that off to the platform team later? Or were they already kind of ahead of that curve and or, you know, were you at the same point in the curve? No. So the, the initiative to adopt Mesos uh, came out of modeling engineering specifically. Got it. When we were trying to solve this modeling problem of doing black box optimization um, at scale on like simulations um and then it turned out yes this is a this is a workable solution and it is more broadly applicable so we should uh transition it over to another work okay got it and, and scott uh sigopt has been doing some things with kubernetes uh as well uh can you talk about that and and the relationship between the work you're doing on the optimization side and the infrastructure do you see in particular, do you see uh, folks, other folks, kind of express that same challenge where there's want there's there are things they want to do to empower their modelers and their researchers, but they run into infrastructure challenges? Definitely, uh, we see this all the time. Where um, especially if you're transitioning from a world where you're maybe doing manual tuning of a model, um, where it's an expert um, trying to do it sequentially um, in a notebook environment or something like that. Doing 10-dimensional optimization in your head is hard enough, but trying to do that maybe across 100 different workers is maybe impossible. Um, but in addition to that being a hard optimization problem, it becomes just a hard like resource management problem of SSHing into 100 different machines and making sure that they don't fail, like Matt said, and everything like that. So we're seeing more Are and more. Are folks really doing it like that? Uh, we've definitely had users where they want to take advantage of our uh, ability to do high parallelism um, as part of our uh, uh, optimization suite, um, uh -huh. and we support up to a hundred individual workers. And so we've I've seen users, yeah, literally SSH into a handful of different machines and try to like uh, they're using screen to keep the sessions alive, and they're they're trying to do everything like that. Um, and at the end of the day, you could be an expert in deep learning, an expert in modeling, but then all of a sudden there's this massive barrier of DevOps and doing this right. So we uh, try to be active members in this community. Um, we're contributors to Kubeflow. Uh, we've developed our own solution called Orchestrate that uh, handles all of this for you as well. Take something that you might have written in a notebook, um, and then very easily you can containerize it up, pass it off to a Kubernetes cluster, and then SIGOPT acts as this distributed scheduler for all of your training and tuning jobs. Um, and we see this as, again, helping just amplify what these modelers are already doing. Like, again, you could be an expert in defining the model, understanding the data and things like that. But you don't want that barrier of parallelism, that barrier of distribution to be what prevents you from really getting to that best possible answer. Um, so we see this as something that some people are building into their platforms. We see this as some people, uh, individual researchers just want to be able to have this superpower, um, but we're continuing to invest in that, both in actively contributing to the open source community and building specific tools um, tailored to the enterprise that we can serve our customers with. Mm -hmm. And uh, across the folks you talk to, how do folks 
know when they need to transition from this, you know, I'm going to do, you know, optimization, man, you know, I guess there's one, you know, there's a, the, the step zero, I'm doing it in my head and I need to do it, you know, uh, programmatically um, or I need to do it manually. And then, you know, I need to do it in a more automated fashion. Like I, I, I'm trying to get a, how do folks come to terms with, you know, folks that aren't like heavily investing in, you know, platforms or optimization or some type of automation. Like what are the things that you see like clicking for them that uh, that motivate them to start investing? Yeah. Um, so I think it goes back to what Matt was saying around opportunity cost. And you can define opportunity cost in a variety of different ways. So for some firms we work with, it's about expert productivity. So we're working with a global technology consulting firm where when they roll this out globally, every single team that was using SigOpt was able to complete their client engagements 30% faster. Um, we're also working with a small startup that has five PhDs doing really cutting edge uh, AI. And their founder says they think of SigOpt as just a number, another member of the team because it's taken this burden of doing this manual tuning off of them. And so that expert time can be a massive opportunity cost. But also, just if the performance of your models matters, that's more opportunity cost as well. Because usually optimization of architectures, feature transformations, hyperparameters, yeah, it takes time. But it's usually also orthogonal to any of the feature engineering you're doing. Um, so it's added benefit that's otherwise being left on the table. It's not about replacing what your data science was doing. It's about just adding to what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another big opportunity cost. And then finally, it's time to market as compute costs, as things like that. If you're spinning up GPUs and waiting around for sometimes weeks to get the results of something being tuned, cutting that down to days or hours can really change the way you do iterative modeling. And so I think it's really about seeing if you run into one of these pain points or if there's just a lot of opportunity being left on the table, expert time, compute time to, time to market, or just the value of these models that you're investing so heavily in. Mm-hmm. Matt, are there particular types of models that are prevalent among your researchers? Uh, and from a platform perspective, are you building out specific platform capabilities to support specific kind of models? Or do you, do you think about the world more model agnostic? So I, like I said before, we try not to be prescriptive about what our modelers do. And we really do everything. Um, Obviously, over the last few years, there's been a, a lot of uh, a lot of buzz around deep learning, and it is something that we have been looking at uh, really deeply. Um, no, no pun <laughs> intended. I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, but um, and that that is one technique where it really did turn out that we need to build some things that are um, that are specific to supporting that that technique. Um, mm -hmm. So well, it is a pretty broad uh, class of models, or a broad, broadly applicable technique. Right. So um, we have had to invest um, into things that are targeting deep learning scenarios, just to even test out whether it it works on our types of problems. Um, and uh, as we all know, hyperparameter tuning there is also a big challenge. Um, so that's another place where we are applying SigOpt. Mm -hmm. And was that uh, was that something that just worked out of the box? Like, was it? Did you have to do anything special to apply uh, SigOpt or any of the other things in your tool chain to deep learning, or um, 
you know, was it, uh, you know, did it just work? Uh, there are challenges around getting the machines that have the GPUs that we want uh, in order to use it effectively. So that that was one thing that we had to to change how we do some stuff. Um, and but that, sound, that to me sounds like infrastructure, like Kubernetes and scheduling and that kind of thing? Yes. Okay. Um, but as far as SIGOPT goes, no. Uh, one of the things that we love about it is how well it works out of the box um, and how easily it integrates with so many of uh, our existing platform solutions. Kind of looking back over the past 12 years, are there things that you would approach very differently um, knowing what you know now? That's a great question. So uh, the the one thing that immediately comes to mind is Python and how uh, dominant Python has become in the data science modeling space. Um, that is something that certainly wasn't obvious back in 2001. It wasn't obvious when, when I had started. Um, we've been a JVM shot since the beginning. Mm. Um, so built out a lot of tools and infrastructure on the JVM for, for doing uh, – not just for building our systems, but for doing the analysis that we need to do. Um, so I would say investing more in Python earlier on, getting on on that train would have um, been something that I would do differently. But mm -hmm. uh, it it really has taken over uh, for us. Um, our, our modelers come in. Many Everybody we hire comes in with that as their language of choice, the best library, open source libraries are out there. Um, and obviously the deep learning world is uh, dominated by Python as well. Mm -hmm. So have, having had that experience, how do you apply that forward? Does that lead you to wanting to touch and try everything? Or are there specific things that you now see were clear in in Python and Python's rise that you can apply that pattern matching to to other things? I don't think so, but I think that the the one change is that it's made us approach things in a more language and uh, like platform agnostic way, or, or you know, v, mm. not relying on everything happening on the JVM. Um, so. Because you can't predict what's going to win, so you have to build something that's flexible and that can support lots right. of different things. It's it's interesting. So, I talk to folks that end up on both sides of this. You know, it is it takes a lot more resources to support something that supports everything, right? Than it does to build a very targeted solution and uh, be pres prescriptive. Um, but this is a great argument for not doing that because you don't know what. You know, we all pronounced, uh, you know, TensorFlow the the winner without any uh, challengers, and all all of a sudden PyTorch popped up, right? And now it's totally reasonable to want to allow your modelers to use that if that's their preferred kind of interface. And that's just one example of how stuff you think it's a game over, and stuff just pops up out of nowhere. Yeah, so, but that said, some of the uh, platform agnostic choices that we make are actually they're just the right choice to make anyway, or they have additional benefits aside from the um, being somewhat future-proof. So for instance, data access and and doing that through services um, where we're not having any expectation of what the consumer is, um, is an example of a, a way that we're adapting based off of what we've observed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you were talking to a team that 
has been doing modeling, has been doing data science, you know, has achieved a level of success there, but is early on in thinking about, um, you know, formalizing a platform effort, what kind of advice would you give to them? Well, the, the world is so different now. And, and also a lot of those places, if they're just starting, um, they're operating at a very different scale from us. So the cloud providers and their solutions are wonderful, especially at, at smaller scales, but even in some cases for folks at our size. Um, so picking one and really taking advantage of it um, and all of the services that they offer while being mindful about vendor lock-in um, is probably what I would say to focus on. Yeah, when you think about the the cloud providers or generally about any um, kind of package offering, they often have kind of gaps that get in your way that can be hard to fill. Like how do you balance that concern versus, you know, kind of the ease or just kind of getting everything all at once? Or is it, first of all, is that a, a challenge that you've had to kind of engineer around uh, in the past? And, and if so, how do you kind of think through all that? It hasn't been so much of a challenge for us because we have been running our own data centers for so long. So we've already got things working really well without all of the cloud provider specific offerings. Um, so it made uh, le leveraging the cloud providers compute really easy because we weren't dependent on uh, any of their like bespoke solutions. Um, but even it, more, more generally than cloud, there are a lot of folks that are uh, a lot of startups and even mature companies that are trying to offer NN one size fits all platform in a box kind of solutions. And the route that you've gone is to, at least in the case of optimization, identify a kind of a best of breed, you know, focused, targeted thing and kind of plug it into some broader thing that you're building. Like when you think about kind of the, the role of that end-to-end, -end, you know, versus kind of building based on you know, individual things that you like, like how do you kind of parse all of that? Well, because we've already been doing it with components, separate components and haven't been leveraging one end-to-end -end solution because nobody really does everything that we need. Um, I mean, we, we like to think deeply about every step of the process and find the right solution for each step. Um, so that's one of the things that really appealed to us about SIGOPT was that it really did target this one problem and solved it in a way that um, didn't that wasn't uh, locking us into any particular technology before or after that stage. Uh, that, that really was a, a huge benefit for us. And then on top of that, uh, the fact that it could be used on any of the cloud providers. It wasn't just one uh, solution that was like trying to keep us locked in somewhere. Uh, it was also a big benefit. And, and Scott, I'm curious if you have any perspective on that. You certainly, I'm sure you get asked that a lot. Yeah, definitely. And I think, again, going, it's going back to standardizing where it makes sense, um, but doing so in a way that's non-constraining. Um, so uh, as Matt was saying, like, you don't want to spend all your time being future-proof, but you definitely need to recognize that uh, the flavor of the month is going to change. Uh, four years ago, a lot of people using SigOps uh, were using Scikit-Learn primarily, and now we see a lot of TensorFlow and PyTorch, and we're already starting to see quite a bit of pickup of reinforcement learning, even in production, um, with firms like OpenAI that use us. Mm -hmm. um, and 
two years from now, it's all probably going to be different. Like the landscape continues to change. And it's not just the landscape of tooling. It's the landscape of infrastructure providers as well. Again, four years ago, AWS was so far in front of everybody else that you didn't really think it twice. Um, but now there's other providers out there. People use hybrid solutions. Firms like Dropbox are moving back off of the cloud for cost-saving measures. And it's really about saying, what can I bring to the problem? What do I differentiate? And then leave optionality everywhere else. Um, and that's something that's core to us, being agnostic to the tooling, the infrastructure, whatever it is. We want to meet you where you're at and augment what you're doing not try to fit you into a sandbox or lock you into something in particular. Well, Scott and Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to chat about this very, very interesting topic. Um, I appreciate uh, having you on the show. Thanks so much, Sam. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.